Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. And today I'll be talking to one of the authors of Creating the Law, State Supreme Court Opinions and the Effect of Audiences. Uh, The two authors are Michael Romano and Todd Curry, and I have the pleasure to have Michael on the phone today. Michael, how are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, such a pleasure. Uh, As we do, uh, maybe you can introduce yourself and also your co-author on this project, Todd Curry, just a little bit. So, Share a little bit about yourself. Certainly. Uh, Well, I am an associate professor of political science at Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia. Uh, My co-author, Todd Curry, is also an associate professor of political science at the University of Texas, El Paso. Uh, We actually got started with this project way back in graduate school. We're actually both graduates of uh, PhDs in political science from Western Michigan University. Uh, We basically came from two very different backgrounds uh, in terms of research and study. I largely looked at political communications and institutional patterns and communications uh, in Congress and the presidency and a lot of uh, different actors like that. Uh, Whereas Todd looked at state Supreme Court justices and uh, the institutional basis of retention and election. So Uh, like you do in grad school, we started having a lot of conversations about the fact that, you know, judges at the state level issue a lot of opinions and all of these are public records and they're based around the idea of text, but we don't really study them a lot because that's a lot of words to read. And that seemed like a travesty to, from both of our uh, perspectives. So we started reading opinions, uh, started noticing patterns in the variations and opinions. And that's kind of how the book ended up becoming, uh, uh, the becoming born, I guess. Yeah, the, the book uh, is published by by Routledge, and its central parts are, I think, judges, uh, the decisions they write, and also who listens. Uh, I wonder if you could start talking a little bit about the first of the these two things, uh, the judges and their decisions. Uh, which judges do you focus on in the book, and and what type of writing in particular are you most interested in? 
Sure. We look specifically at state Supreme Court judges. The reason why we focus specifically on them is because they are generally the last appellate court that we see many cases and controversies ending at. Uh, and their decisions largely have the effect of law for the state, which gives them a lot of power in the po- uh, policy process. The reason why we decided to focus on their opinion writing rather than just the vote in the decision is because largely the opinion is where we actually get the justification for the decision in a law. So we know that, for example, if a court votes 6-3 in favor of something, then the decision goes in favor of whichever side won, but we don't understand why, essentially. And so that's where the opinion becomes very important. Uh, Judges are actually one of the few actors at the state level that must, according to state law, justify every decision that they make. Every opinion, uh, or a good proportion of opinions, I guess they should say, have to come with some sort of public declaration as to the justification for their choice. And that seems like a very interesting difference between, say, representation uh, in Congress or representation in the executive branch, whereas you don't always fully get a reason why a actor makes the decision that they do. Uh, Whereas with the court, they have to be very clear in these things, or they have to try and be very clear in these things, which is where we kind of dig into this larger aspect of how do judges write and why are they writing the way that they do. Uh, That actually was part of our reading of a book from Larry Baum. Uh, Larry Baum wrote a book called Judges in Their Audience, where he kind of talked about these similar things from the federal court level. But since statewide judges uh, introduce a greater amount of variation with regard to the types of audience that they can talk to, we thought that this would be an interesting avenue to really look at how laws start to vary in terms of their interpretation. You analyzed this uh, writing using some sophisticated methods. Uh, What did you and Todd do to categorize these written decisions? And maybe how is this different from how scholars have approached this in the past? Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll start with the last part and kind of move forward. In the past, when we've analyzed opinions or when we've analyzed any piece of political rhetoric, we generally resort to hand coding the writing and making some sort of determination as to what the author actually meant, which means that any anybody interested in textual analysis had a large stack of documents that they were hand reading like uh, over the course of decades, depending on how many pieces of information you were trying to uh, analyze. So what we wanted to do was take a large swath of opinions that are generally somewhere around 40 to 80 to 120 pages long and really dig into how the court uses similar arguments from one decision to the next. Obviously, if we were hand coding all of these, the book never would have come out. And so Todd and I uh, implemented a, a textual analysis using computational uh, algorithms. We Basically, we asked a computer to read all of these uh, opinions for us. And then they, the computer would then naively sort of tell us, well, you know, this opinion was very similar to this other opinion that it also read. And here are the words, basically, that uh, we fe- that the computer found in common between the two. 
this gave us the opportunity to go back afterwards and really start to dig into the main pieces of a text and see how these main pieces of a text explain or justify what the author was actually trying to argue without, again, having to read uh, you know, tomes of volumes of legal code. Uh, what we end up finding as a result of that is that judges actually have very unique patterns of communication in terms of how they write opinions. But these patterns usually kind of fall into different categories depending on the type of opinion they're trying to write. Uh, when it's a very clear-cut sort of decision-making, they can write a very simple opinion that they don't have to worry too much about being uh, controversial in the public's eye or controversial when it's being interpreted by a lower court or a different audience. Whereas if the case itself has some measure of uh, ambiguity to it, the judge has to work a whole lot more to make sure that the words that they're using are going to be persuasive to the audience that they're trying to convince that this was the right choice to make, given all the facts and given all the uh, nuance of the law at the state level. Now, as you've just been alluding to, the other piece of this that we haven't talked about yet is the audience. Um, and and the these judges are not just speaking to the lawyers that are involved in the case. They also have other audiences that they are considering. And so uh, who serves as the audience for these decisions? And and how do you imagine they, they um, look at these judicial opinions? That's a really good question. And that's something that Todd and I spent a lot of time really thinking about, not only for the book, but in uh, our research agenda, just uh, more broadly speaking. Uh, at the state level, you have variations in the way in which judges are not only selected to be on the bench, but also how they're retained. And we argue that this is uh, this creates different types of audiences for a judicial opinion. Uh, at the very base level, the primary audience are, is going to be your colleagues on the bench and then also the parties to a case. Those are going to be the individuals that are in most need of persuasion and the ones that are in most need of an answer in regards to the party. Beyond that, you have the larger legal community that's going to be uh, utilizing this decision as precedent once the decision comes out. So these are other lawyers or interest groups or potentially other legal actors or policy actors at the state level. But once we get past that primary core of audiences, we also have to recognize that the broader public is an audience to a decision as well, um, especially for states where retention is left up to voters. So in states where we have either retention elections, which are essentially votes of no confidence for a judge, so you kind of get their name on a ballot and you ask uh, is this person, should this person be allowed to be a judge, yes or no? Uh, or in many states where we have uh, competitive elections for judges, these decisions and the justification, specifically the opinion themselves, can usually be uh, come up again in the next election cycle uh, as either a reason to keep the person on the bench or to remove them from the bench. And so when judges write, they have to choose their words very carefully, especially in these situations, because even if the broader public doesn't engage with the opinion directly by reading it word for word, 
if the decision in the opinion is controversial or if the decision in the opinion and the justification is questionable or can be used by, say, a political uh, competitor to make a justification to remove you from the bench, then that's something that can be detrimental to a judicial career. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So you've, you've got this um, pool of opinions and you've got these, these um, audiences and they're broken into some categories. Uh, what did you find about the, the patterns of, of the way judges write? You're not interested in um, kind of what the, what the rulings are, but the, the way in which they talk about the rulings. Um, what were the differences that you discovered in the, the tones and, and uh, manner in which these opinions are written, uh, especially let's talk maybe first when they're written in the majority? So when they're written in the majority, the, the major variations largely have to do with issues of uh, whether or not, first and foremost, the case is a salient case or whether or not it's something that can kind of slip below the radar. Uh, the majority opinion is one that is usually tries to strike some sort of balance between persuading audiences on the one hand and trying to make a solid, uh, clear justification for the choice that was being made. And this makes some sense when you think about how an opinion gets used in the application of law. You don't want an opinion that is too vague so that it can't be used in future cases, and, but you also have to recognize that there can be legal ambiguities, especially in cases that have dissents, for example. When there's a dissent present in the, uh, in the decision in a case, the majority has to work, uh, work around that dissent, and it usually helps to solidify the majority by providing some sort of antagonism, essentially. Um, but the majority opinion largely has to be one that solidly confirms that this is the correct answer. And so they usually will write to a, uh, to a degree that is a little bit less complex than if there's ambiguity in the case, meaning that essentially they're writing more concise statements, more uh, firmly dis- uh, decided statements, kind of black and white, this was right and this was wrong, essentially. Now, in, in chapter four of the book, you shift your focus to dissenting opinions, and you look at this interplay between the language of the dissenting opinions and the majority opinions. Uh, what did you anticipate the relationship to be, and, and what did you ultimately discover? Well, I think we anticipated originally that when a dissent was present, the 
court would have to work a little bit harder in terms of persuading. Uh, in the book, we try and make a, a clear line between when judges are trying to just simply justify their actions and justify their choices, whereas you know writing in those kind of clear ways that I was talking about before versus attempting to outwardly persuade somebody that they were right. And the reason why there's a difference between the two is that justification, you can pretty much just start from the presumption that you were right and you're just clarifying why. Whereas if you're trying to persuade somebody, you have to start with the uh, assumption that the person you're talking to might think you're wrong, which means you have to work a little bit harder. So we assumed at the start that when a dissent was present, that persuasive role was going to be much more present, uh, that judges were going to try and write in a way that was uh, much more akin to, well, the other side will make this argument, but I'm the one that's right, and here's why, essentially. It's kind of having to accept the fact that there is a difference of opinion before starting that justification process. What we largely find, though, is that there is a bit of a balance there and that the majority opinion can use the dissent to strengthen their own justification a little bit more. So rather than just acknowledging the ambiguity, they actually kind of move firmer into trying to make a clear, strong statement that this is the reason or that this is the right choice and uh, kind of allowing the dissent to essentially uh, strengthen their argument for them, which is something that judges have argued in the past is a role of the dissent uh, and one of the useful powers of the dissent. And so once we started thinking about it a little bit more, it wasn't all that surprising to us, I suppose, but it was also a bit of, uh, it it went against some of our original uh, presumptions. So I wonder if we can take a step back and just talk about kind of why this all matters. Um, Why does this matter in sort of a democratic sense? Um, Is there an importance to these findings for um, the sort of democratic uh, principles that the courts adhere to? Um, Maybe you just sort of generalize a little bit for us uh, about those findings of the book. Sure. I think it's it's kind of funny to actually talk a little bit about democratic values in the court, if uh, just in terms of the way that we generally view uh, the court itself, which is sort of outside of the democratic principles of representation and self-government. When we talk about the court, we oftentimes think of it as this uh, application of the rule of law to keep us all in line, but we usually are thinking about judges in this uh, nonpartisan, sort of unbiased way. Uh, And what we're trying to make an argument for is that, first and foremost, we we have to recognize that audiences will move a judge into thinking about how ideology plays into the writing of a decision. Now, they want to make the right decision, obviously, and they want the decision to not go on to further controversy. And so they're trying to strike that balance there uh, between the application of the rule of law on the one hand and uh, their interpretation of the rule of law, which is largely based upon ideology, as previous studies of courts have usually shown. Uh, The big piece of the puzzle that I think was important for Todd and I to uh, focus on was the fact that 
judges at the state level especially are acting in a representative fashion in this way. And so the not only does the audience matter, but also the way in which a judge is chosen matters for whether or not they can represent those audiences. And so the determination of who gets to be a judge leads to how they're going to write opinions. And that'll lead to how the application of law is viewed from the public's perception. And so it's a big part of this sort of circle of how the rule of law maintains itself and helps to develop democratic norms within uh, within a state, within a nation, or uh, and broadly speaking, around the world. Uh, the title of the book, again, is Creating the Law, State Supreme Court Opinions and the Effect of Audiences. Uh, the authors, uh, one of which you've been uh, hearing from is Michael Romano. The other is Todd Curry. The book is published by Routledge this year. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. This was great. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.